Well, church, this week I had uh, an interesting conversation with some friends. <clears throat> These some friends that go to a different church, and they were talking about just the divisive uh, nature, really, of the last year and a half or so uh, in their church, and just the struggles that they've gone through around things like masks and uh, where to meet, when to meet, how to meet, if they can meet. Uh, they have uh, just felt like these last year and a half have made them uh, just in, in some ways not even want to be gathering where they've been gathering as the body of Christ. Uh, and it's brought a lot of questions on a whole lot of sides and a lot of conflict. And as we were having that conversation, it was interesting to me that multiple people in the conversation kept bringing up passages from Romans to talk about their perspective. And they talked about the passage that we're going to look at today, which is uh, a bit of a controversial passage, I guess maybe to say the least, in our culture today and even in the church today. Uh, actually, two big, two big uh, claims that this passage makes that, that I think make a lot of us uncomfortable. Uh, and they were talking about uh, Romans 3, Romans 8, Romans 9, Romans 14, Romans this, Romans that, Romans the other. And then as we brought the conversation to a close, it reminded me of what we have talked about that this book of Romans is all about. Paul wrote the book of Romans to a church that was incredibly divided. There were a group of Jews and a group of Gentiles that uh, I think it might be a little bit of hyperbole, but maybe not a lot to say they were at each other's throats over some issues that for them felt really important and really uh, they carried a lot of weight for them. And Paul wrote this book, this letter, to them to remind them that Jesus Christ gave everything to receive those who didn't deserve it. And so you should be willing to give up a whole lot to receive others. Jesus has done for me something that's hard to fathom. He received me, the Bible says, when I was his enemy, when I was far from him, when I was a sinner. And through his, his self-sacrifice, he brought me into relationship with him. So therefore, it is my not only responsibility, but opportunity as a believer in Christ to make sacrifices of my own to have right relationship with others. And it just reminded me how incredibly relevant this book is for our moment but not only for this moment, but for every moment, because it seems that increasingly, uh, and, but I mean, really, in every, in every time of history, and I think every time that will come in the future, we're going to see that the biggest challenge that we face in our world today is not going to be, how do we figure out, you know, there's, there's, there's two totally different ecosystems of media, right, at least, and people in one ecosystem of media have totally different perspectives and ideas and information than people in the other ecosystem of media. And then there's this, you know, there's these political divisions. And there are these social divisions and economic divisions. There will always be divisions. But in the midst of all the divisions that we experience in life, there will also always be a God who shows us how to break down division. So whether it's racial uh, uh, conflict or whether it's class conflict or whether it's just uh, people can't even agree on what's true anymore, basic facts of life, there's always a God who shows us and not only shows us but has done it, who bridges those divides. So I just wanted to share that today because it impressed upon me again just the complete relevance of what we're talking about here. And then the second thing that I want to mention before we jump into the text is just a reminder of what we learned last week, which is that Paul is writing this letter not on his authority as an apostle, but on the authority of King Jesus, who's the one who sent him. That, that the Jesus who called Paul is also the same Jesus who called everyone else in the church. And it's this king 
It's his authority that Paul is putting on display. And so as we go into this passage that has, I'd say, two very big controversial claims, just remember that we're not here to analyze Paul's beliefs or Paul's writings. We're here to analyze, well, actually, let me rephrase that. We're here to submit ourselves to the authority of King Jesus. Right? Now, that doesn't mean that we all have to agree on how to interpret these passages. But it does mean that as we approach them, that we, we, we come to them with the expectation that whatever God is saying to us here, we're submitted to it. Right? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and if you're not, that's a different story. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then the expectation is that God's word is an authority in your life. And so Paul is putting Jesus' authority on display here. He's saying Jesus is the one who has initiated this reality around the gospel. And so as we have that as our preface, let's jump into Romans 1, 18 through 32, uh, and let's just have fun with the controversy a little bit, maybe. <laughs> maybe we can. We'll see. Controversy number one, <laughs> right there in the first verse. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Man, imagine going out into the community today and saying, the wrath of God is being poured out from heaven against all y'all. Everybody here, under the wrath of God. Now, what do you think their response would be? Yay. <laughs> You'd probably get a lot of people thinking you're one of those kooky preachers that has the, like, you know, they used to have like the billboard on the front and the back, you know, the end is near, you know, repent for the end is near, and, and, and kind of like this fire and brimstone and you probably, probably a lot of Christians would feel uncomfortable with that message, right? I think a lot of us feel uncomfortable with that message. I feel uncomfortable with that message because what, what have we been kind of saying to ourselves and to the world for quite a few years now about this whole thing of the wrath of God? We say, whoa, whoa, whoa God's loving. God is love. God, God is reaching out to you. God is giving you this invitation to come to him. Right? He, he sacrificed himself for you. And all those things are true. But what we don't want to talk about is we don't want to talk about the wrath of God. And in fact, there are uh, one, of the, one of the questions that's going to come up in this conference that we were telling you about at Westgate, uh, confronting Christianity, is the idea, how can God be good if God has done, if God pours out his wrath? We read in the Bible, God having people killed. How can that God be good? We don't, we don't like that. We don't like that God so much. We like, we like the Jesus who has an adulteress come to him and, and, he, and, he has, and there are all these people that are about to stone her and he starts writing in the dirt and he says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And he says, who condemns you? Where are, your, where, where are the ones who condemn you? And she says, they've all left. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. We like, we like that message. Why? Well, it's a great message. And it's a true message. But what we can't do is divorce that message from this equally important and actually flip side of the coin message, which is that the God who is receiving us with grace, the God who is forgiving our sins, the God who is loving us deeply, is also the God, this God who cares about you, is also the God who cares so much about righteousness and holiness that he has wrath for it. This is the same God who rescues the oppressed by pouring out his wrath on the oppressor, right? This is the God who, who redeems the nation of Israel 
by bringing death to Egypt. You can't have the one without the other. They're part of the same coin. They're part of the same picture. And when we talk about God's wrath, what we mean is uh, that God's righteous anger is being brought to bear on a world that is unrighteous. And what we're going to look at today is why does he do that and how does he do it? Okay, why does he do it and how does he do it? And then also want to see how this teaching sets up everything else that's to come in Romans. Because if you're like a lot of us, it's easy to go look at a passage of Scripture, maybe a verse, maybe a few verses, a paragraph, maybe even a chapter, and say, oh, well, this is what this means. And forget that it's in the middle of a whole bunch of other things, and it's, it's coming from somewhere, and it's leading somewhere. We have to understand what the purpose of that teaching is in order in the whole picture to understand what is really being said so that's what we're that's what we're going to try to do today uh, uh maybe i will not be very convincing but we'll see we'll see how it goes so again verse 18 the wrath of god is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people okay god's righteous anger is being unleashed like he's, like he's letting the dam, uh, letting it go, letting all that flood out to a world where there is godlessness and wickedness, right? Godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. People who, uh, shall we say, and by the way, the people in this, in this passage, that's us, we're people, right? People who suppress the truth of God by our own wickedness. He says that we should know about God because God has made it plain. But we don't want to. We don't want to know the truth about God. Now, you may be thinking, well, what about someone, I don't even know where, where it used to be someone who grew up in Timbuktu. I don't know, I don't know if that counts anymore uh, as a place where people grow up without information. <laughs> but, you know, like, a, my goodness, people who grew up in Massachusetts who've never heard of Jesus, who've never heard of God. What about them? Are they suppressing the truth of God by their wickedness? What about people who, who grow up in another country with no access not only to, to Christianity but to any religion? I mean, maybe that exists like, like in certain parts of China or where it has been so um, um, ta- you know, intentionally taken out of the public sphere that you almost have to go looking for it or it has to find you somehow. Because maybe you don't have access to a lot of information about any kind of religion. What about those folks? Well, Paul says that since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his, he lists two of them, his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Like you just have to look around you to realize this stuff came from somewhere. And Paul is not uh, a modern philosopher or, uh, or anything like that, but he hits on a very simple reality that for something to exist, it had to come from somewhere, and that had to come from somewhere, and that had to come from somewhere, and that had to come from somewhere. But at some point, there had to be something that didn't come from somewhere. There has to be something eternal, right? If there's no, if there's no eternity, then there can be no temporal world if there's not anything that lasts forever there can't be anything that lasts a little time because it all has to come from somewhere and then he also says there's his divine nature and all he really think i think he really means by that is there's some being that is higher than us right there's something out there that that's a god right it's not the gospel, it's not Jesus Christ, it's not the God of Israel, it's not any of that stuff. But there's someone eternal, and that someone eternal is greater than I am. And that's evident in the world. And Paul doesn't say that we don't believe it because 
uh, you know, we can't see God. He doesn't say that we don't believe it because of science. He doesn't say we don't believe it because of anything other than our unrighteousness. And I think what he's getting at is this simple idea. If that's true, that has some serious implications for how I live. Because there's someone out there who should get a say in how my life goes. And I don't like that. It's the original sin of humanity. The sin that began in the garden when Eve saw that fruit and she thought, oh, I would like the knowledge of good and evil so I can decide for myself what's right and wrong so that I don't need someone else to tell me what to do. I'd like to be the one in charge of my life. And then her husband, Adam, who was not, a, who was not an, uh, an innocent victim in all this, he willingly followed her along in that and, and brought <laughs> all the stuff we're about to read about in Romans with it. This fall of humanity and the and subsequent wrath of God. It's the same sin. This desire to be our own God and not be submitted to another God. In fact, he goes on to say, although they, these people, these, these people who are wicked and ungodly and all that, although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor give thanks to Him, But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. He says there was such a desire and such an innate knowledge of the fact that there is a God that these people had to worship something. They just didn't want to worship the true God, the God that could have power over them. So what do they do? Well, they fashion gods that they can control. Gods that look like people or animals. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier in our service uh, that often or today, many of the gods that are worshipped in our culture are not, not even animals. They're ideas or material things like money, like influence, like power, like education, knowledge like esteem, like fashion, looking a certain way. I, I did this, not that I'm fashionable. <laughs> you know, that, <laughs> clothes, right? Whoever wears nice clothes out there, right? Uh, you know, th- this whole idea that we've got we've to worship something. So let's worship something that doesn't have any authority or power or influence over us so that we can do what we want. But we don't like to talk about the wrath of God. We don't like it. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel positive and encouraging like K-Love, right? You don't go to K-Love and, they don't, and, and hear a song about God's wrath being poured out on the world, right? It's not encouraging and positive in a sense. But I want us to see that maybe at the end of this, maybe we actually could be encouraged by it. Because here's, let's, let's look at what God does in pouring out his wrath. And then let's look at why he does it. Okay. So it says that they're worshiping these idols. So it says, therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. I'm going to stop right there for a moment. God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. Now, what do we mean by handing over or giving over? What are we talking about here? Because some people describe this in different ways. Some people say, well, what God's doing is, is you know, you're, you're over here sinning. You're over here rejecting God. You're over here abandoning righteousness and goodness and truth. And uh, God's going to go like this. All right. That's what you want. That's what you get. He just kind of takes his hand off and uh, lets you do what you want. Now, there's an aspect of that for sure. The only problem is this word is never used like that. It's never used like that in the Bible. Um, This word for handing over or giving over 
you don't need to learn the Greek, but paradidomi, if you're interested in that kind of thing. It's the word that's used when Judas hands Jesus over to the Sadducees after he betrays him in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the word that's used when people are, when the disciples are handed over to the authorities and put in prison. It's the word that's used in a positive way. It's used when Paul gives the, the people of God, when he says he hands down the faith. He hands down the truth of the faith to them. He's not saying, there's truth out there, go find it. He's actively giving it to them. Judas is actively betraying Jesus. Uh, the disciples are actively forced into prison. Right? So it's not God doing this, per se, as much as it is God doing this. It's kind of like when you come home uh, and your parents realize you've been smoking a cigarette, and they're like, fine, smoke a pack of it right now. Let's see how much you like this. Let's see how much you're going to enjoy this choice that you're making because I'm going to give it to you in the extreme. Why would a parent ever do that, by the way? Is it because they want their kids to become addicted to cigarettes? No. Why do parents... It's not a common practice anymore, but why might parents force their kids to smoke an entire pack of cigarettes after they smoked one. They want to make them sick of it. And so what if the wrath of God serves two purposes? What if the wrath of God is both an expression of His righteousness and holiness, it's just part of who He is. You can't separate this Part of God from his love, from his grace, from his gentleness. And what if also God's wrath actually uh, flows from his love also? You know, when you read the Old Testament, you see the people of Israel, they reject God. And what does God do when they reject him? Does he give them lots of gifts? Does he kind of like, you know, shower them with praises? Does he send them a box of roses to try to get them back? No. When the people of Israel reject God, what he usually does, he sends this marauding army in to wreak havoc on the nation of Israel until they realize once again that, oh, they can't do this on their own. They actually need a Savior. That's the wrath of God, the righteous, just, appropriate, deserved wrath of God being poured out on Israel. And every single time it results in them coming to repentance and putting their trust in the Lord. Now, there's a lot we could say about that. Like, for starters, I don't like that pattern. That doesn't feel good. But then if we get really honest, then we probably have to say something like, oh yeah, but I'm kind of like that too. I pray a lot more when things are going bad than when they're going good. I reach out to God more when I'm desperate than when everything's fine. I trust God more when I have nothing than when I have everything. This is not a a failure of God's character (laughs) that he has to pour out his wrath to bring people back to him. It's a failure of our character. And it's a direct result of sin. By the way, another word we don't like to say in our culture today. We don't like to talk about sin, right? We like to talk about love. And we love to talk about miracles. And we love to talk about the presence of the Lord. If that's something you've experienced, you want to share that with people. We don't like talking about sin. But the thing is, talking about sin, it's kind of a necessary part of getting to all the good stuff. That's why Paul starts with it. He has his introduction. He's like playing nice. Hey, guys, good to see you. Can't wait to come visit you. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. I love you so much. I'm excited about the gospel. Man, it's great, isn't it? The gospel's awesome. Now the wrath of God. Let's start there. Because the bad news makes the good news so much better. 
So why does God pour out his wrath? Because it's part of who he is, and it's because he loves you. How does he do it? He says, let's just see how much you like this sin stuff. Now, before I read the next part of the verse, I want to make two comments about this. One is that everything we're going to read in the lists that follow, it's not that an individual person was particularly disrespectful of God and then so he hands them over to this particular sin. Okay? God's talking about the wickedness of a people. Verse 18. The wickedness of people, a group, a society, a culture, a nation. God is looking at our collective reality, and our collective reality is that we are opposed to the things of the Lord. And every single one of us, before Christ entered into our life, whether we were conscious of it or not, we're trying our darndest to get away from someone else controlling our life. And so we rejected the truth of God and exchanged it for some kind of lie. So it's not about God saying, oh, all right, Yili, you don't love me, so I'm going to give you one of these sins. Which one do you want? Let me see here. Which one am I going to give you? No, no, no. He's saying, you all, he's God's Southern, y'all, y'all are messed up. And I got two problems with that. Not problems. I got two, two realities around that. One is my holiness does not allow that to stand without me doing anything. And also, I love you so much that I'm going to find a way. I'm going to find a way to get you through this. And I think most of us can attest that there was a, some level of hitting rock bottom that was required, either in your initial salvation or subsequent to that many times over in your life to put your trust in the Lord. I know I can attest to that. Feeling like, uh, you know, I know I should do this. Oh, I know I should spend time with Jesus. I know I should uh, be in prayer. I know I should be yielding to God's lordship in my life. I know I should be living a certain way. But until I'm desperate, I'm just not really willing to make those changes because they're, they're a type of dying, and I don't want to die. So I'm going to live the way I'm going to live. And God says, how about we fast forward this process? I mean, I think if God didn't do what we're about to describe, I think a lot of us would be on this very slow train of descending into sin that we might die before we get to the point where we submit. And that does happen still. But God's saying, let's, let's expedite this process. You're going to smoke a cigarette? Smoke a pack. You're going to sin? Let's just get it all out of the way. Does that make sense? It's a very active thing. Now, so that's the first controversy of Romans 1. God pours out his wrath. God is, uh, in his righteous anger, appropriately pours out punishment, pours out uh, um, his, his discipline. And the way he does it is that he kind of gives you a push into more sin. Such a weird weird thing to think about, right? He does it. And, we, and what, what I've seen in life is that people typically don't stay where they are. We typically either we grow closer to Christ or we grow farther away, okay? And that God is doing this at a societal level. He's doing it to a culture. He's doing it to a people. So if you see anything on here that's you or someone you know, it's not that they did anything particularly onerous. It's that God is pouring this out on the culture. All right, so here's what it says. Therefore, God gave them over, paradidomy. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. He's not putting them there, but he's saying, look, if that's already there, let's just play this out. We're going to go all the way. To sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. By the way, that's first on the list but let's not get caught up as if that's the only thing on the list. There's a whole list. It says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served 
created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. What do those two verses have to do to each other? I think what Paul is saying is that there's a way of giving yourself over to your sexual desires that is, in effect, idolatry. In the ancient world, these things were very obviously connected. You had these prostitutes who lived and worked at shrines for ancient gods. And if you wanted to connect with that god, then you would connect with them through sex with one of these shrine prostitutes. And that seems pretty foreign to us, but I think it's actually, there was some, some reality that those people hit on that intuitively they understood the relationship between um, uh, this degrading sexuality with idolatry. He says, he hands them over to the impurities, uh, to sexual impurities for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God with a lie, worshiped and served created things rather than creator. Whether that's worshiping sex itself, uh, in a sense, worshiping your own pleasure through that, whether it's worshiping the other, whether it's, uh, again, like in the ancient cultures, worshiping other gods directly through this. Paul's saying these things are intrinsically linked. Because of this, verse 26, God that gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed sh- shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, this is big controversy number two, right? Because our culture says there's nothing wrong with the type of sexual expression that Paul's describing here. Nothing wrong with it whatsoever. And to stand up and say, actually, that is wrong. And if you use that S word that we don't want to use, sin, in, in relation to this, I mean, there are places where you not just will be laughed at, you will be shouted down, right? Right? There are places where you will be aggressively attacked for this view. This view that has been held by believers for 2,000 years, believers in Christ, and before that, believers in God for another 1,500 years or more, that's held by probably the majority of the people in the world, you will be called a bigot, a hater, a homophobe, or whatever, uh, a bully, a tyrant, if you say that today. Now, I've just said it. It's on camera. It's going to be on our website. That makes me uncomfortable. Because that's where we are. This is why I started to remind us to say, Paul's not saying this on his own authority. He's saying it on the authority of King Jesus. But let me say a few words about this. Because I think sometimes believers put more of an edge on it than it needs to have. And sometimes we try to take the edge away. So the more of the edge that it needs to have is sometimes people will look at this or they'll look at other passages in the Scripture and they'll try to make out that homosexuality or homosexual practice or uh, any kind of this gender stuff that we're facing as a culture. These are, these are the worst sins possible. And we're going to see in a moment that Paul puts this on the same list as disobeying your parents, the same list as greed, the same list as arrogance. This is not about God rating and ranking sins. You understand? That's the first thing. Uh, And also, it's not, you know, this line that says, they received in themselves a due penalty for their error. I don't think that's something Paul's saying just about this one sin because he then goes on to align that comment with all the things that follow. Greedy people receive in themselves a due penalty for their error. Boastful people receive in themselves a due penalty for their error. But, you know, there were Christians, particularly in the 80s and early 90s, who were using this verse to say things like, if you're dying of AIDS, it's because you deserve it. I mean, just, I would say, hateful and hurtful 
approach to a passage like this. And really putting something on the Word of God that's not there, I think. And so you can put too sharp an edge on this. As if somehow that what we're talking about here is there's like, there's like the normal sins that you, that you do, that I do. And then there's these other sins. And man, as a church, we really need to make it clear to the world that we're against these sins. Because there are some Christians, again, who they, they won't speak out about the sin in their own heart but they'll be really excited almost. Like, I'm using that word intentionally. Like, there's almost an eagerness to speak out about the sin of others. And even as I say that, I don't mean to imply that there are not people in the church who struggle with this very sin. Because there are. None of these sins in and of themselves disqualify you from being in Christ. None of them do. That said, if you are in Christ, then we should be, and you know, I say we now because this list includes my sins too, we should be working with the Lord to examine and, and rid ourselves by the power of the gospel and the power of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit to get ourselves away from, from the sin that's in our own heart. So Paul does list this sin that culturally today is a, is a difficult one. But you know what it was for him in his day too? Paul's not writing this letter to the believers in Jerusalem. He's writing this letter to the believers in Rome where this kind of practice is very common and it's most common among the most powerful people. The people with the greatest influence. The people with the greatest say in how things are done. So Paul is being countercultural here too. So we can't just say, oh, that's just Paul expressing his culture. No, Paul's being countercultural already. It's because of these writings that for a long time it was not a part of Western culture. It's because of the Bible that it was not a major part of Western culture. But now it is again. Are we in the worst time there's ever been? No. We're just going through the cycle. There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new. We're just in the cycle. And we'll stay in the cycle. And then it'll change again, and it'll change again, and it'll change again. And if Jesus comes back in 5,000 years instead of five years, it'll probably change 500 times. It's just the way it is. Furthermore, Paul says in verse 28, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God, here we have again, parodidomy, God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips. God put, Paul puts murder and gossip in the same list. Okay? He puts envy in the same list with every depravity. They're slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity. They're not faithful. They have no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree and that those who do them deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, just in general, do you see that playing out in our culture today? Not only do people do things that are wrong, but they approve of those who do things that are wrong. You know, as someone, so I'm in my 40s. Some of you are thinking, that's not very old. Others of you are thinking, that's quite old. I'm in my 40s. I can say that at this point in my life, I hear and see things that astonish me that people affirm. The things that people affirm today astonish me. 
Because when I was growing up, I don't remember those things being affirmed. But the things that were being affirmed when I was growing up probably astonished my parents. Right? You know, it's, there just seems to be like, to me and to a lot of people, like this description of how God engages with the world seems pretty accurate to my experience. Right? You know, uh, we live in a time where the church affirms things that God says are not to be affirmed. Right? And you think, well, how did that happen? How did that happen? You know, and, and some of it is uh, uh, giving over to shameful lusts. So, like, you know, the church has a very different stance about uh, extramarital sex than it used to. I would say in a lot of ways, in a lot of areas. Uh, some of it has to do with, with this other list, these other things, like... Um, uh, where was it? Uh, being arrogant, for example. You know, if you want to succeed in the world today, you need to be arrogant. Right? You need to make much of yourself. Put yourself out on social media. Talk about all your greatness, your strengths. You know, there's this idea that if, if, you, if you want to get a great job, then you need to present yourself as someone who can do amazing things. Uh, if you go to a job interview too humble, then you'll never have a chance. You know, we, we actively teach that, that boastfulness is better than humility. Okay? You know, it, seems like a, it might seem like a small thing, but this is the same wrath that's in any other thing on the list. Murder, strife, uh, uh, evil, wickedness. It's the same list. I think we as Christians, we need to be really alert to how this plays out, not only in the world, but in us. Now, here's the thing. God says he's pouring out his wrath on the people who have suppressed the truth by their wickedness, okay? What Paul's going to do in the next chapter is he's going to show us that whatever that... uh, claim provokes in our own thoughts about ourselves, the only appropriate response is to say, that's me too. That's me too. I suppress the truth by my wickedness too. And that's as a believer. Because Paul's writing to believers in the very next chapter and the chapter after that is how he's going to make the case that all believers also condemn themselves by what they say and what they do. And that none of them are righteous. No, not one. So it could be easy for us to get a passage like this and think about those people. But what Paul is saying is, no, I'm talking about this because this is you people. This is me people. This is we people. Remember I told you there were two groups in Romans at each other's throats. You had the Gentiles and the Jews. The Jews have this idea, well, we have the law, so we don't do all this nonsense. We're better than the Gentiles because God gave us the law. And Paul's going to say, no, you got it all wrong. And the Gentiles are going to say, well, you know, we didn't know any better. So we're better than the Jews because they've done all this stuff, but they had the law. We didn't even have the law, so how, we didn't even know, so we're off the hook. And Paul's saying, no, that doesn't work either. Both groups on the hook. These are the people in the church he's talking to. So it's so easy for us to become self-righteous and look at this list as a list about other people. I think what God wants us to understand is that this is the list about us. We are all deserving of the wrath of God. We are all sinners. And we're going to repeat that refrain for a few weeks as we go through these chapters. But that's where we're at. But the final thing I want to say about this is that this doesn't mean God has abandoned this culture or this people or this society or the church. 
Because I think it's easy to read a passage like this and think, oh, well, God's handed them over, so he's done with them. And I just want to remind you, God's handing us over is a kindness. It's part of his love, just as much as it's a result of his holiness. God's not abandoning us. He's not abandoning me. He's not abandoning you. He's not, avan- he's not abandoning some person that you thought of when I was reading this list. No. God is putting each one of us in the position that we need to be in to have the best opportunity to repent and put our faith back in Him, whether we're already Christians or not. And when you experience it or you watch it from the outside, it can be devastating. It's devastating to be under the wrath of God. It doesn't feel good. It feels like, it feels like things are getting worse and worse and worse. But God knows where we need to get before things can get better. And you've heard the phrase, sometimes you just have to hit rock bottom before you can go back up, right? It's true. That doesn't mean it's a guarantee that everyone who hits rock bottom will come up. But God knows they definitely won't come up until they hit rock bottom. That's a hard thing to deal with. It's very difficult to deal with. We want God to say something like, hey, I'm going to do this thing. It's going to be hard, but don't worry. It's definitely going to turn out great in the end for everybody, especially the person you care about the most. That promise is not here. But it's also not, you know, that person you love, I'm just going to squash him with my wrath, and that's going to be the end of it. I'm done with them. It's not that either. And as believers, we need to learn that what faith is, is faith is having confidence without the assurance of an outcome. God knows what he's doing. God's been doing it for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. For millions and millions and billions of people. God knows what he's doing. He did it for you. He can do it for others. But the way he's designed the whole thing, not everyone will turn to him. But he's giving the best chance that anyone can have to turn to him. And so we can trust him. He's not guaranteeing an outcome, but he is guaranteeing himself. Does that make sense? God's not saying, I'm, I'm not going to promise you that the outcome you want is going to happen, but I promise you I'm going to be with you every step of the way, and I'm going to be good every step of the way. And a phrase that I've used a lot is that no one is ever going to get to heaven and go up to God and say, how could you possibly have made that choice? We're going to get to heaven, and we're going to go up to God, and we're going to say, oh, now I get it. Now I see. You are amazing, Lord. You did absolutely the right thing at absolutely the right time, and now it makes sense. But in the meantime, that's hard. But here's the thing. What Paul said right before this passage is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, right? Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to bring salvation to everyone who believes. So when you have faith in Jesus, not just faith in the outcome, right? But faith in the person. You'll never be put to shame. You'll never be put to shame by Jesus. He will always do the right thing. He will always do the best thing. And there are people that you love and people that I love that right now are running from him and are repressing their knowledge of him and are replacing him with an idol. And what Jesus is doing is 
in a way that is totally in line with his character. He is pushing them to see that what they really need is him. Not everyone that I love, that you love, will get to that point. But God's giving them the best chance they have. He's giving them the best opportunity they have. We have to come to the end of ourselves before we will trust in Jesus. It's just the way it is. You will not be put to shame by that gospel. I know we like to come to church and go home encouraged, right? Feels really good to get our boost for the week. And uh, this doesn't feel like a boost. Just know that this, what, what we're doing here is we're setting a foundation for the greatest news that anyone could ever hear. Sometimes you've got to get the bad news before you can really receive the good news. So I'm not going to send you home rah, rah, rah. You can get that from the Super Bowl tonight. But stick around. It's coming. It's coming. The boost that doesn't just get you through the week, but the boost that gets you through eternity, it's coming. The thing that you can hold on to, it'll never fail you, and it'll never let you down. It's coming. And if you're really feeling antsy, just read the rest of Romans tonight. Man, it's coming. It's so good. It's so good. But... Remember, what God is doing here is he's doing a kindness. He's doing a kindness. It won't feel good, but it's real. And it is good. If you can, say amen to that. If you can't, come back next week. Let's pray. Lord, I feel...